0: wait another moment to start your learning journey with Masterclass. Right now, our listeners get an additional 15% off any annual membership at masterclass.com slash Liz. That's 15% off at masterclass.com slash Liz. Masterclass.com slash Liz. Hi everyone. I, I decided to start this one with another Liz reveal. So before I was a business news journalist, I worked for nine years in local news, covering you know everything from riots to crack house busts to Hurricane Andrew, one of the most devastating Category Five storms in U.S. history, to the O.J. verdict, to you know the mayonnaise festival in Ohio. No, there's no such thing as a mayonnaise festival, but I I, I thought I was pretty gutsy and I always wanted to run toward danger, not away from it. That is the number one characteristic that good news reporters must have. But the one thing I never got to do... Was cover a war. My first job in news was as an overnight production assistant at KCBS Channel 2 in Los Angeles way back in 1986 at the height of the 12 year long Civil War in El Salvador. Now, some of our camera crews had gone down there and covered it, and I would pepper them with questions about the experience. Make no mistake, though, being a war correspondent ain't glamorous, it is terribly terribly dangerous. My guest today has not only covered the most dangerous war zones in the world and just about every catastrophe the world has seen over the last 23 years, but is perhaps best known as being one of the first reporters on the scene in lower Manhattan on 9-11 when two planes struck the World Trade Center and was reporting live on national television when the towers fell. For 24 years, Rick Leventhal raised his hand at Fox News to enter whatever nightmare the world was facing from wars to Hurricane Katrina, riots, prison breaks, you name it. He was there. How in the world did this kid from Silver Spring, Maryland, who at age 16 was heading down the wrong path, doing drugs, getting D's and F's on his report card, eventually dropping out of college to hang drywall at construction sites, How did he end up being one of the most respected network news correspondents in the world? My friend Rick Leventhal is here to tell you. Rick, welcome to Everyone Talks to Liz. That was the greatest introduction I've ever had. Thank
1: you. (laughs) You deserve it.
0: (laughs) Oh, my God. You know,
1: we we had a similar local news career. It sounds like I I did the big move festival in Cowpin, South Carolina that you are. You were covering the mayonnaise.
0: Well, yeah. Columbus, Ohio was my first Columbus and then Cleveland, then Boston. Uh huh. You know. Yeah. We've done our we've done our penance, haven't we?
1: Paying our dues, yeah.
0: (laughs) You know, I thought a lot about Rick, how I should start my conversation with you. Um, Would it be, you know, covering 9 11, the Iraq War? But then I found out, thanks to your new book, Chasing Catastrophe, what a little train wreck you were in your younger years.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I was a mess. (laughs) I gave my parents gray hairs for sure. (laughs) Oh, my God. I was a bad kid.
0: Yeah, we'll, we'll, get, we'll get into that in a minute. But I'll start with this because I have really thought about it. A couple of years ago, I was in Washington, D.C. at the museum, which sadly closed in 2019. But arguably the most riveting exhibit for me, Rick, was the 9-11 room where they had a video of the news reports from Ground Zero on that day. And you are basically the whole thing. I sat no there way. awestruck at how you were so composed doing exactly what a reporter is supposed to do, you know, report what you were seeing in real time. Take us back to that morning from the minute you woke up to what I guess I would imagine you thought was going to be just another day.
1: Well, I mean, the backstory is: is I had had knee surgery in May of two thousand one, and I was going to rehab every week, two or three times a week. And that morning was the first time at eight a.m. I went to the uh, to the to the hospital where the clinic was. They were closed because my orthopedic guy handled the New Jersey Devils hockey team, and they had a practice that morning. So, for that reason alone, I was in my office early at like eight thirty, which mm-hmm. I never was. So when my beeper went off, or I think it was my beeper went off and to say, where are you? And I called the desk. They said, a plane hit one of the towers. Turn your TV on. And I turned the TV on. The tower was in flames. They said, where are you? I said, I'm in the office. They said, can you get down there? I said, yeah. So I just jumped on a train in the basement of 1211, 6th Avenue. You know, there's a train that went right downtown. And we stopped at Canal Street, and I and I and the, the guy wasn't going to go any further. So I, I was ready to jump off the, plane, the train. and run down the tracks so because I knew how to get there. Hmm. But um, but he pulled up to the stop and I came up above ground and looked downtown I, you know, I had a bunch of blocks to go. And everyone the world had stopped, and everyone was standing on every corner, just staring at the towers on fire. And I guess I didn't realize until I got all the way down there that both towers were in flames. And I, I passed a couple of police lines. a couple of times they threatened to arrest me. I had to throw show my credentials and talk my way in. Mm-hmm. And I got all, got all the way to just north of the North Tower, and there was a final police line. They would not let me go any further. I was trying to get to the building. And I looked up and I saw both towers on fire. And I remember I asked a a female officer, what happened to the second tower? And she said, that's where the second plane hit. And I knew right then and there we were under attack.
0: Now, how'd you meet up with your live truck? Because you were live right there among the very first reporters to fire up a signal.
1: Well, Pat Butler was the engineer on the satellite truck. He had parked it on Church Street, which is basically Sixth Avenue, about five blocks north of the uh, World Trade Center. Um, at It was Church and Canal. Oh, no, I'm sorry, Church and Warren. Mm-hmm. And they, I got a page about where the truck was. So I made my way over there. And when I got there, he had already strung out the camera and cable that were on the truck. There was no photographer yet on scene, no producer. It was just me and him. And he had he had managed to hardwire a a payphone on the corner cuz all the cell service was out cuz the towers were on top of the the cell towers were on top of the towers he managed to hardline through a payphone no. and get communication with New York and find out that we were they could see our signal and so we just picked up the he picked up the camera I picked up the microphone and I started narrating the scene around me and in about 10 seconds the first tower came down and so we both realized that we had to get out of there and we picked up the camera and and, and moved to the truck. Well, and-
0: wait a minute, because I've seen this this video and this footage, and you held your ground. It started to come down, you started to explain it, and yeah. then you began almost talking to him, saying, Buddy, I, I think we need to move. I mean what was going dude.
1: through need-
0: your mind, Rick?
1: Well, you know, Liz, that was such a disconcerting day. It was so weird and and awful, and just, just, I, 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 it's hard to. I, I just, I didn't know what was going on. Nobody did. We didn't have any communication with the outside world. It was just rumor and innuendo, and all we knew was a plane had hit the two planes that hit the towers. And so, when I heard the rumble and saw the smoke cloud, I just kind of assumed that one of the towers had, had come down. I mean, obviously something awful was happening and people were running in our direction. So, I mean, it, it made sense. Like we had to do what we could to, to find safety. So we just jumped in the truck and he left his camera on the ground underneath the truck. And I grabbed the microphone, and just carried it in the truck with me and he closed the door and it recorded our entire conversation for the next four and a half minutes. And right. for the first time in, in chasing catastrophe in the book, I, I, um, I took that conversation and put it on paper. You know, I, I have the original tape and I was able to transcribe it. And then I had my original notebook from that day. So I had my notes that I was taking in the street. And then the interviews we did with, with people who were as stunned as we were, it was it was all I could take to remain calm and focused and and report on what was happening around us. Because after four or five minutes, we did get up and get out of the truck and go back out there. And it was like, everything was covered in moon dust as I wrote about. And, and we just started talking to whoever was willing to talk to us
0: you know you talk about how days only days later because you were down there for days and days only days later did you really let yourself wrap your mind around what you had witnessed what you had experienced and you cried
1: it was uh, almost two weeks after the attack the first day off i had and i was sitting on my couch in my apartment not far from lower manhattan and it just all hit me and I broke down and I said, I was sobbing and I, you know, I needed to get that out of my system. Yeah. It was just such an awful experience on so many levels and so many people lost their lives and, it, and just, it just transformed the city in so many ways. And of course there were there were there were a lot of stories of of perseverance and and you know rebirth and all of that. But you know, it was just ultimately a really, really tragic incident, oh. an awful attack on on America. And you know I I hope that people remember it. you know, everyone says never forget, I obviously won't. I get chills every time I talk about it. I, I definitely have PTSD from it, but I'm but I wear that like a badge of honor, you know, because I because it meant a lot to me to be there to be able to report it. Uh, and then to go put my hand up and go to Afghanistan and Iraq and everywhere else after that to try and tell the stories of the men and women who were, who were taking a fight to the
0: enemy. This is Everyone Talks to Liz, and we will be right back. wait another moment to start your learning journey with Masterclass. Right now, our listeners get an additional 15% off any annual membership at Masterclass.com slash Liz. That's 15% off at Masterclass.com slash Liz. Masterclass.com slash Liz. Well, let's talk about Afghanistan. Um, When it appeared that there was going to be a war and that we were going to go in to Afghanistan and eventually Iraq, you did raise your hand. Had you ever covered a war before?
1: Well, I had been in uh, the Kosovo conflict in um, Macedonia Mm -hmm. and Albania. And at the border of Kosovo, I never actually made it in. But I was there and I was working with Marines who were staging just outside Kosovo. In fact, Rob Riggle, the famous comedian and actor, was a Marine Corps captain at the time with the Public Affairs Office. And he was our point of contact. So I would talk to Rob Riggle every day. And I actually did a story on him when we got back. But, you know, my war experience was pretty much limited to that. So this was my first real trip trip. To, you know, at or near a war zone when, when I made it into Afghanistan in 2001, uh, that December, I was one of five TV reporters, along with some uh, print journalists and a couple still guys and a cameraman who we shared. And we wound up at a desert airstrip between somewhere between uh, Helmand and Kandahar, I think. And we just we were there for like a month.
0: And what I what I think is really interesting, because I, I'd like our listeners to understand how If you're going to make it in any business, you have to push and shove. You had gone straight to management at Fox News and said, I covered ground zero. I should go to Afghanistan. Now, I can remember marching into my news director's office in Cleveland before Hurricane Andrew hit and i said i want to go and he said you're late four other reporters have already asked why should i send you why should i send you and i said because i know exactly where i'd go first i've already talked to our affiliate from dallas whose truck is down there and we can use one of their paths and he was like oh okay she really did the work but you have to fight (laughs) for this you raised your hand so they said okay he deserves it you get down there and Ollie North shows up with his producer. And by the way, yeah. for those of you who don't know, Ollie had a show, former Marine, obviously. Um, he had a show yeah. on Fox News. And you must have said, now, wait a minute.
1: Oh, I'm not, I was pissed. I, what, I was
0: pissed. Yeah?
1: <laughs> yeah, because, you know, it, the way it was set up, we were all at this like staging area in Bahrain. The Marines had set up a... a a a press room in a hotel and there were a lot of journalists there far more than there were slots for them to go into Afghanistan and so everyone put their names on a list and they were going to take a correspondent from each network I mean that seemed pretty clear and I figured I was the guy because I was the only one that Fox sent until Ollie North showed up Hmm. and I'm like what are you guys doing here and I think (laughs) Pam Brown was his producer and I'm like uh you guys aren't trying to get in, or you go, yeah, well, you know, blah, blah, And so I had to – I called – I think I called John Moody. I know I called the, the news uh, – my uh, bureau chief. It's like, this is BS. I'm the reporter. This guy does – you know, he has a TV show. He's not a correspondent. He can't do live shots, breaking news, and all that. Like, I'm the guy. You got to send me. He doesn't know how to write a package. Come on. So – it, it's, I don't know if they were if that mattered. I don't know if I was able to convince them to send me instead of him. Maybe that he was trying to go in and you know independently of me, but I I wound up going. And he well, didn't.
0: Rick, let's let's be clear. It's vicious out there, and yeah, you, you know Alan Pizzi of CBS News, David Wright yes. from ABC, Rob Morrison from NBC. Those th- those guys. I mean, Rob's a former Marine. You were right there. And and believe me, there's nothing. And I know, Ollie, there's nothing he would have liked more than to have taken your slot. But that's what happens when you're on these stories and you know and you look and you see there's really only room for one these days from each network. Let me just
1: say, yeah, I I do have a lot of respect for Ollie North. And I liked him, you know, and and I got along with him really well. Oh, but your
0: competitive juices.
1: Oh, I'm I'm very aggressive, and I was very um, determined to be the guy to go in. I, I didn't go all that way to Bahrain to sit there and watch Ollie North go in and, and report the story. I wanted to be there on the front lines with those guys, and it didn't mean a lot to me, Liz, because that did really touch my core when I was down there at Ground Zero. I mean, I, I spent weeks, months covering the the, the, re, the recovery and and rescue and 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 the cleanup and all that, mm-hmm. and then the rebuilding too, which is also in my book. But, you know, it, it was really important to me to follow the story wherever it went.
0: And it then took you... To Iraq, uh, that was a much yeah. different experience, right? I don't think people understand um, when you say embed. That is that it was there was no embed during the Vietnam War, where guys like Morley Safer would just get up each day and decide which side to report from. Would it be North Vietnamese or would it be the U.S. and, and South Vietnam? It, now with this war, it was you're going to be with the Marines, and we'll only let you do so much. But Iraq was different, right? It wasn't. As hermetically sealed by the U.S. military,
1: it was it was a much better experience, more much more immersive experience than Afghanistan. Mm-hmm. My first trip to Afghanistan in 01, we were in a basically in a, in a concrete building for most of the day, and right. they wouldn't let us go on the missions. But these were like special ops guys, and they wouldn't let us go out with them for the most part. It was more of a dog and pony show, you know. But we were there yep. in Afghanistan, but we weren't going with them in their vehicles where the fight was. But when we went to Iraq. And I was embedded with Third LAR. We were with the Alpha Company. We were with the ca- in the captain's vehicle, but it it was a it had an LAV twenty five chain gun on the roof, and we had a you know fifty caliber machine gun, and we rode with the Marines in their vehicle through the desert from Kuwait into Iraq, and we slept in the dirt. We ate the MREs that they were eating. Mm-hmm. Uh, we we were in the fights that they were in, and it was you could not have been closer to war than we were. We were in the war with the Marines. We just didn't have weapons.
0: How frightening was that?
1: Um, it, it was frightening at times, and and there were times when it was just boring. And I would say to them, "Hey, can you guys go shoot something? You know, can <laughs> can you give us some action? God. Like we've been sitting around for two days. What what's going on?" And, like we became really good friends with these guys, of course, and and I became really good friends with the lieutenant colonel in charge of the the whole battalion, and and he became a three star general eventually. And I'm Liz going to see him, I think, in Vegas in like a month. Because they're having our their 20-year reunion, the third LAR in Las Vegas. So I'm excited about that, you know, because I, I want to see these guys again. We, we had an incredible experience with them. And, yeah, there were times when it was really, really scary. We, we drove into a firefight, which is in the book, Chasing Catastrophe. It was like a 45-minute full-on firefight. Every vehicle in the battalion was in a convoy. Mm and surrounded by enemy fighters who were popping up from behind sand dunes like whack-a-moles. And these Marines were just taking them out. And there were no casualties on our side, but I think they killed dozens of enemy fighters that night.
0: So, I mean, obviously, when you're at Fox News, you were very much at the top of your game. But I want to really rewind the tape here. When did you first manifest signs that you wanted to be a reporter? And I know, because your book... (laughs) Reveals something called Silver Chips, the school
1: newspaper. (laughs) That was was our high school newspaper, Silver Chips. It's so funny. Thank you for reading that. It's a great book. Um, Great book. I wrote, I wrote, I was a reporter for Silver Chips at high school. And I also did the morning announcements one semester. Over the PA system? Yeah, this archaic PA system. And I remember they they would let us play 30 seconds of music before, oh, it's Tuesday. Uh the lunch special is, you know, whatever. And it was like, you know, a minute or two minutes of announcements. And in most classrooms, it sounded like the teacher from uh Charlie Brown, like,
0: <laughs> <laughs> was, you know, they're
1: really antiquated speakers. But I played Aerosmith uh Toys in the Attic for thirty seconds, like at high volume one morning, and they were like, uh, you can't do that anymore. <laughs> but uh, but uh, for some reason I didn't it didn't occur to me that I should pursue a career in journalism and As you know from reading the chapter on my early years, I dropped out of college twice, Lafayette College, and then University of Maryland. I had a GPA of 0.27, which I'm very proud of. (laughs) I started hanging and finishing sheetrock. I worked odd jobs. I worked in bars. I was a doorman. And then at, at some point, I just... I just felt like I I wanted more. I wanted to do more. I I thought I was capable of more. And Mm -hmm. so I decided to go back to school part time. I took a careers class at Montgomery College in Rockville, Maryland.
0: That's a community college, right?
1: Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, and it pointed me toward journalism. It just there was a two-year program there in communications and broadcast technology, and they asked questions in the careers cra- class like, you know, what would be your dream job? What would you? I, I was like, I want to be a sportscaster, like Bob Costas or Brent Musburger, and cover Super Bowls and World Series. Right. And so, and then I saw the two-year program, and it clicked. I was like, yes, this is perfect for me, and it was. I started anchoring the college newscast. I volunteered at the local cable station and and operated camera for city council meetings which is the probably the most boring thing i've ever done in my life <laughs> and then i went to american university and I anchored their newscast and i and i did the same thing i kept shooting city council meetings and i started working as a dj in nightclubs i part-time and and i got my degree i graduated i was 27 years old when i graduated and i was already working part-time at the local fox station which had been metro media and started sending out tapes and resumes and eventually got hired in Columbia, South Carolina um, six months later to be a reporter.
0: Right. And that was a, a small station. Like we all start. I mean, I, when I was applying to stations and getting tons of rejection letters, cause this was pre internet, you had to send out snail mail with your little, you know, well, they weren't little, they were three quarter inch behemoth tapes. I, I remember a cameraman at KCBS saying, Send to third rated stations. They'll take a chance on you. And oh, yeah. yeah. Like my my first station in Columbus was like number three in digging tunnels. I think that was well, our motto. <laughs> <laughs> well,
1: the station I went to work for was was I mean, I feel bad <laughs> for them. They were they were so bad. They were so uh cheap. They had two news cars and uh, they both broke down. One blew an engine. The other one, I don't know, something oh else God. went wrong with it. I came to work that morning. I saw there were no cars there. And I said to the GM, I'm like, what? Well, where are the where are the news vehicles? He goes, oh, they're in a the shop. <laughs> I said, well, are you going to rent a car? He goes, our insurance won't cover that. I swear. <laughs> and I said, well, wh- what are we supposed to do? He goes, well, you can use your car. And I had just got this beautiful uh, 86 Mustang GT convertible. I, there was a present I bought myself before I moved to South Carolina. And it had leather seats and it had a saline body package. I was like, I don't want to put that gear in this beautiful new Mustang. I just, well, he goes, Well, no, I guess we won't cover news today. And I was like, Okay, fine. <laughs> I put the tripod in the trunk. You know, I, I did it. Uh, but they you know, it was an experience going uh to this rinky-dink station, only had one newscast a day, no weekend news, which actually worked out to my benefit because I didn't have to work weekends. Right? I mean, talk about bare-bones operation.
0: Well, sure, but that's how it all begins, does it not? And if you don't do that, and if you don't start in the small markets where you make your mistakes and, you know, you do them where only you know, Big Ten fans can see you. That was my case. Um, somebody, it was Jim Lampley because he was our, our weekend anchor at Channel 2 in Los Angeles, very famous sportscaster. Oh, and yeah, he, I said, I remember him. he said, go to the Midwest where only Big Ten fans will see your mistakes. <laughs> and you got to do that.
2: You've
1: got yeah. to do that. I, Liz, I agree. I couldn't agree more. It's so important. I've met, you know, young reporters who, who somehow managed to start at the network level, right, Me too. Uh, or or skipped a bunch of steps, and I'm just like, you know what? Or, or when or when I talked to I used to talk to interns a lot, you know about about you know they would ask me about how to get started in the business, and I tell them you need to go work in a local news market. Don't think you're going to be an anchor on Fox News Channel out of college. And if you are so lucky to get that job, you're gonna you're gonna you're gonna fail miserably, or you're not going to be as good, right. as if you're willing to go and and put in to pay your dues. And cover fires and murders and train wrecks and car wrecks and whatever random stuff pops up from day to day because you do that for two, two three years, yep. five years, you can handle
0: anything. Anything. Anywhere. Toxic yeah. spills, train derailments, prison breaks, which brings me yes. to the prison break you covered.
1: That was incredible. I, I mean, the, the, the Danamora prison escape Upstate New York was one of the most Insane. interesting and yeah. and and difficult stories that I've covered because the terrain was so rough and we were trying to keep up with the search for these two guys who were on the on the land for like thirty days. And murderers, was, dangerous guys. Oh yeah, they were they were killers, stone cold killers, and it was remarkable. It was a made for TV movie, which they made into a TV movie. <laughs> I, uh, know, I know. And, and, and like a six-part series on Showtime or something that Ben Stiller directed, uh, it was uh, a remarkable story. I, I I give so much credit to the producer Ron Ralston was my producer on that story and uh, and, and the cameramen. You know because it was it was hot, it was rainy, it was sticky, there were bugs everywhere. We were fighting through underbrush and and moving locations four, five, six times a day, trying to keep up with the search. And you know that's that's the other thing about me, Liz. I know a lot of the crews. They may have respected me. They probably didn't like me that much because I would never want to stay in the same place twice. A lot of these guys will set up for their live shots for the day and they don't move. And they go and sit in the truck between hits and they wait for their next hit and they go out and do it and go back in the truck. I want to go out there and find the, a better location. I want to go find an else who can add some color to the story. Break down. Let's go, move.
0: Let's move. Yeah.
1: yeah and like the, one, That was one of the things I loved about when we went to Libya. I, went to, I did two trips in Libya when they were trying to overthrow Gaddafi and eventually did. And we would pack. We had a a video phone, a satellite phone, um, satellite. What do you call it? Live view. Mm -hmm. So we could go live from anywhere, anytime. And we would we would do a hit. We'd pack up. We'd roll to another location. We must have done that twelve times a day. And it was so cool because we were able to show so many different things. And to me, that's what mattered. If if viewers were watching for fifteen minutes, they'd see one cool live shot. But if they watched for three or four hours, they'd see us in three or four different locations you know, uh, reporting on every aspect of the war that we could.
0: This is Everyone Talks to Liz, and we will be right back.
2: Hey, folks, it's your man, Keyshawn Johnson, here to talk about Angie, formerly known as Angie's List, your go-to home services, marketplace for getting all your jobs done well. Now you might be wondering, what exactly is Angie? Well, let me tell you, it's the nation's largest home services From finding the best price to scheduling a pro at your convenience, Angie's got you covered every step of the way. So get started today at Angie.com. That's Angie.com or download the app today to get started on getting all your jobs done. That's Angie, your trusted ally in home services.
0: Rick, to me, when I hear these stories, and and there are many of them, you literally have been in the most historic catastrophes of the past, let's call it three decades. There's yeah. one thing about you. You really connect with the audience. You have this look where there is no BS. You are going to give the story. Nobody can can pull the wool over your eyes and you are going to tell it as you see it, as you interpret it. You know, where did you learn to do that?
1: That's a really good question. And I'm not actually sure of the answer, except to say that I always strive to keep it real. And I don't know where that came from. Honestly, I never really thought about it. And then I'm sure there's an answer in my head somewhere. I've been doing this a long time. You know, I mean, I started reporting 36 years ago. So I, it's hard to remember exactly what it was that triggered that in me. But I, I'll tell you this, Liz, I took great pride in being as real as possible in, in, in telling the story from the heart with the facts that I could gather, trying to make it interesting and compelling for viewers, but also not BSing them and not trying to be that phony, baloney reporter acting like a reporter. Oh, my and, gosh. You know, my first news a-
0: director in Columbus, Ohio, a guy named Ron Bielick, said to me, please do not. Be that person live from criminal courts, Elizabeth Clayman, Channel 6 News. You know, that yeah. was the thing. You know, I w- I, I've would i got to go by Elizabeth. It's much more serious. Hi, it, oh, news. cut it out. You're Liz.
1: Yeah. 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 I, it, it, so many people put on fake air, yeah. put on a fake voice, uh, talk in ways that wouldn't talk normally. And, you know, I'm guilty of that, I guess, on occasion when I'm reading a script in a, in a tracking booth. Because it's an artificial situation. Sure. But my goal was always to just be me and just try to a professional version of me, I guess, but still be me and tell the story from, you know, from from my eyes and and tell it the way I think people would want to hear it that they, that they'll want way, in ways they'll understand.
0: I want to know about your parents because you do talk about the point where they were frustrated with you. And you know, you have said in the book that you could have just as easily maybe died from a drug overdose because you went down the wrong path at yeah. the early stages of your life. But there was a point where and this may blow a lot of people away, they handed you your five grand in bar mitzvah money and said, You gotta I think it was move on. Like
1: 3, yeah, they kicked me out of the house. I think it was thirty three hundred bucks. Oh,
0: okay. Why did I, I read five thousand? Well, I don't know. Man, you I, I, thought, I thought you raked it in. <laughs> but, you know, um, you could say, like, what's the nice Jewish boy doing, uh, you know, going down the wrong path? Look, it happens to everybody. But what did your folks do? What was their profession? And, and- my,
1: my dad, my dad is a clinical psychologist. He was a professor at Maryland and then at uh, American University, which is why I got free tuition and, and graduated from there. But he eventually became the director of the counseling center at AU, and then he started a private practice. So he was a very uh, deep thinker, um, very uh, much based in in clinical psychology, mm-hmm. and, um, for example, finding ways for people to overcome phobias. That was one of his specialties. Huh. My mom was a social worker. She ran um, a Greenbelt Cares, which is to help families in in the town of Greenbelt outside of Silver Spring, yeah. so they were both in that industry. You know, they were both uh, social minded people, uh, very liberal minded people, um, and I know that I was a big pain in the butt for them because i was <laughs> know, I, I went out and partied all the time and i almost failed I flunked out of high school and then i flunked out of college and you know and i was hanging sheetrock and i guess at some point i was still going out and partying and at some point they were just like uh we're not going to support your lifestyle anymore so uh <laughs> you're going to need to move out when you turn 21 and- it's
0: amazing it's amazing yeah. that yeah. it did take another what six years to really kind of gel but you know, I do want to end by talking about how you and I reconnected just a couple of weeks ago. I, I I don't think I'd seen you in about two years because you finally moved to the West Coast with your lovely wife, Kelly, and you're, you, you decided, you know what, let me quit while I'm ahead. You, you ended your relationship with Fox News. Time to step down. Uh, about two weeks ago, I'm at the Polo Grill on 55th Street having dinner, and I hear this voice say, Liz, and it was you. Yeah.
1: Yeah. <laughs> Uh, we were there with, with Jeff Lewis and his crew. He's on Sirius XM, and we're actually doing his show next week. But I was in town to promote my book, and mm-hmm. it just happened, to, you know, he picked the place. So we were in there having dinner and I and I thought it was you and it took me five minutes to figure out oh yeah that's Liz Klayman right there (laughs) it was so cool you know Robert Kraft was there that night too
0: oh yeah Patriots and
1: so was Al Roker I saw him walk in I said hi to him too I used to work with Al at WNBC but yeah Kelly is is amazing former Kelly Dodd from the Real Housewives of Orange County right your Uh, wife we've been married since 10 10 2020 and uh, we're doing podcasts every day from from our home uh, the Rick and Kelly Show and The Daily Smash on YouTube. <laughs> we do one on Patreon.com, The Rick and Kelly Show on Patreon. And it's it's really fun. It's a departure from what I'm used to. You right. know, I'm talking about stuff I never talked about on TV before. But I can show a lot more personality. I don't have to hide my true feelings about any particular subject. Right. You know, we tell it like it is. And it's liberating and it's really fun. And it doesn't pay quite as well. But, you know, we're having a good time doing it.
0: Well, then I hear... After I saw you, and I, I kept thinking as I said hello to you, God, he looks so, he looks so relaxed and so happy and healthy. I hear literally, oh, uh, what two weeks earlier you had been in a horrific car accident. What the hell?
1: Oh, yeah, it's yeah, yeah. I mean, it's been a month now. I was in some pain actually that night. I, I, I tapped out early. She went out with them to some club and, in Hell's Kitchen, and I and I went home because my ribs were really hurt. I broke four ribs. Um, in a oh. horrific car wreck on the I ten eastbound in uh in the rain. California, we bought a house in Palm Desert and got renovated it. And I was just going to take care of some stuff while Kelly was out of town for a couple of days and I I just lost control of the car. It turns out highways in California get a lot more slippery when it rains than they do on the east coast. <laughs> turns out it never rains out here. Right. So the oil just the oil just rises up, I guess. And right? You know this.
0: Yes. Yes. Because so I, You know, the oil drips and never rains. And when it finally does, you are flying.
1: So I slipped. I, I, I hydroplaned. And I went hard into the center wall, hard. Deployed the side airbags, which broke for my ribs. And then I went spinning back across the highway the other way, went right into a tractor trailer. And, you know, my front end hit his rear bumper. Thank uh-huh. God I didn't go between his tires cuz who knows what would have happened. And also I was in an S-class Mercedes four door, so it's a very well-built car. It's like a tank and it protected me, thank God. Cuz every airbag deployed, windshield shattered, I broke a bone in my foot, but uh I was able to, you know, crawl out of the car and walk away and, you know, I went to the hospital, but uh I could have died and and you know, it's it would have been in my book if it had happened any earlier, but it just happened a month ago and It's not in the book, but my book is happily titled Jason Catastrophe, which seems to follow me around.
0: Yeah, sure found you. Uh, And what I find amazing is that through all of these dangerous situations, the most injured you ever really got was when you weren't on the job.
1: Well, I had a couple of major sports injuries. I mean, I tore my ACL playing uh, basketball in a league with a Fox team. And then I, I, I severely <laughs> dislocated my elbow playing football, like flag football with another team. Okay, just when don't. 50 something years old. Those are my two worst injuries. Yeah. Yeah, very yeah very you're the weekend
0: warrior that just needs to yeah. say, nah, you guys have fun. What I find I want to end with is something that I just learned about you during this conversation. And that is that you really got on that first track of your first job in television when you were at age 27, which to me indicates what really matters in life, and that is it's never too late to become what you might have been.
1: Yeah. It's so true. And that's a message I repeat in the book. You know, if you if you want to do something else, if you think you're meant to do something else, then you should try and do something else because there's no limits and there's no there's no reason to hold back. You can chase your dreams and achieve your dreams. You just have to work hard at it.
0: Rick, thank you so much for talking to my audience. I know they just right now are sitting there imagining you in all these situations and it's so gutsy and it's an unlikely amazing success story. Thank you so much.
1: Thank you, Liz.
0: Guys, am I right? Am I right? Like I love it. There are no spaces in between am and I and right. Am I right? Is he amazing? <laughs> I always knew it when I first saw him on the air till I just ran into him a couple of weeks ago. Rick Leventhal, he's one of a kind, as are all of you, and I can't thank you enough for tuning in every single week to hear these great stories. We got another one coming every single week. Thanks so much for tuning in. I'll see you next time. Want to listen ad-free? You can do it with a Fox News Podcasts Plus subscription on Apple Podcasts. And then Amazon Prime members, you can listen to this show ad-free on the Amazon Music app.